Please remain standing as I have the privilege of reading scripture. My name is Matt Moses, and today we're going to read Romans chapter 6, verses 3 through 11. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin, once for all. But the life he gives, and life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you. Maybe see the. Well, good evening. It is good to see you all. Good to be with you, and welcome to Disciples Church. Uh, you're here for a special, a special event in the life of a church. It's a special thing to see um, brothers and sisters in Christ follow the Lord in believers' baptism to recognize, as we just sang about, that the call of the Christian life, the responsibility of the believer, is to surrender everything to our Savior and to respond to that in obedience. Uh, of entering into the baptismal waters. And so we're so glad that you're here to celebrate uh, with us this evening. My name is Jonathan Mosher, and it's my privilege um, to be able to open up the Word of God with you and for you this evening. And so if you're not already there, if you can turn to Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6. Well, this next week is a busy one uh, for the Mosher family. My niece is getting married next Saturday, and so in, in some way or another, every member of my uh, family is involved in this wedding, and so uh, whether it's the ceremony itself or various other pieces of it, we all have kind of a role to play, and so it's a lot of business and a lot of excitement about it. Uh, and Jessica and I and the kids yesterday were driving in the van. We were driving somewhere with our kids, and we had mentioned the idea um, that my niece Emma is getting married and mentioned the word marriage. And my son, hearing that, my younger son said, well, what is marriage? And of course I responded, marriage is what brings us together. Now in case that reference is lost on you, it's from The Princess Bride. It's a 35-year-old movie. You should have seen it by now. Uh, but after I shared what I thought was a hilarious, albeit obscure, movie reference to my children and got a response of blank stares and an eye roll from my wife, I went on to go and tell my kids what marriage actually is. And we started discussing what actually happens, what actually happens when two people are married. And so we talked about the idea that in marriage, there is a promise before God and before everybody else that these two people are going to love and care for one another for the rest of their life. Just a massive, beautiful picture of God's love for us. And later, as Jessica and I were talking about this exchange that we had with our kids, and, and we were discussing kind of the unique challenge, but also opportunity of how do you explain marriage, this lifelong commitment, the beauty and the wonder and the mystery of two people being joined together to little kids. What we, 
what we realized is that in that explanation there was something very real and very heavy at stake. That there was actually an amazing declaration of what it is that we believe about our God. Now the marriage ceremony itself doesn't necessarily change the feelings of the two people that are involved in that wedding. They both came into that ceremony loving one another and they both left that ceremony loving one another. But the significance is that they walked into that place belonging to themselves and they walked out belonging to somebody else. The truth is that everything changes. And what we're observing tonight in baptism is very similar. That the lives and the direction and the affections of this dear brother and these two dear sisters has been forever changed. It's the public recognition and declaration of the fact that they no longer belong to themselves. And so as we approach the baptismal waters, it's important and necessary to take time to understand what they actually signify. Because if we don't understand the way that the Bible actually talks about baptism and describes baptism, our temptation is going to be to make too much or too little of what it is that we're about to see this evening. Because there are some people who who look at the baptismal waters and in them see nothing more than an empty ritual. Here's just one more thing that the church does when it gets together. Here's just one more rite of passage that somebody who claims to be a believer does. And they don't give it any more thought or consideration than that. And there's other folks, maybe those from a particularly religious background, who look at the baptismal waters as if they possess, possess some sort of inherent magical power. The Church Father Augustine gave us a picture into baptism and more broadly the sacraments, baptism and communion together that I think is a really helpful idea. Augustine said, the sacraments are the visible words of God. It's the idea that in the same way that we have scripture, we're able to open it up and read what it says and through the pages of scripture to understand who God is and what it is that Jesus Christ accomplished for us and who it is that he says that he is. In those pictures of sacrament, whether it's communion or baptism, we get a picture, an image, a a snapshot, as it were, of who our God actually is. It's a message to his people and to all those who might observe See, in a sacrament, the sign itself is secondary. It's outward, and it's visible. But the reality of what's happening in the sacrament is primary, it's inward, and it's invisible. In other words, baptism is a visible demonstration of the reality of our actual salvation. It's a visual picture of what's happened to our soul, though it does nothing in and of itself to actually impart salvation. And if we think of communion, it does the very same thing. When we come to the Lord's table and we partake of the bread and the wine, we are symbolically taking in Jesus Christ himself. It's a declaration of the picture of the gospel that he gave his own body and his own blood for our salvation, for the redemption of his people, and to make a new nation and a new family of those that he's called together. It's a picture. And we see that picture clearly when we look at Romans chapter 6. In verse 3, Paul writes and says, Do you not know that all of us who've been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Now notice, Paul is actually writing this book to those who were believers. He's writing to the church at Rome. These were people who claimed faith and knowledge of Jesus Christ, who had a relationship with Jesus. These are people who Paul himself had witnessed to, to have had a glorious redemption by God. 
They've been brought into a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. They've placed their faith and their trust in Jesus alone for their salvation and for their hope and for their very eternity. Their new identity was found in Jesus and in Jesus alone. And as they were wrestling now to figure out what does this new life actually look like? What is it to be a believer in Jesus Christ? How does that affect the way that I live and the things that I value and the things that I do? Paul says, if you want to understand what it is to be a believer, just look back at the picture that you find in your baptism. Paul says this new life, which is only made possible by Jesus' death and resurrection, is what's actually pictured in baptism. Now look what he says in verse 4. He says, in baptism, we were buried therefore with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Paul's saying for the Christian, what is, what is it that baptism actually represents? And I think there's at least three things that we can pull from this text. First, baptism reminds us of the salvation that Jesus has already brought. In baptism, the meaning of Jesus' death has become intimately, experientially real to the Christian. And so as we're going to see tonight, as we watch our brother and sisters enter into these waters, what you're going to see is you're going to watch them as they're baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And they're going to be laid down in that water and symbolically buried with Jesus Christ. That their life on the cross was made one with him. That in Jesus Christ's death, their old flesh, their old person, everything about them that deserved the wrath of God, was buried with Jesus, that Jesus' death was effectual for them. But of course, then, when we pull them up out of the water, it's symbolic of their new life in Jesus Christ. That just as Jesus was brought forth into new life in the resurrection of the body, there is new life imparted to those that know Jesus Christ. That you've been declared clean. That the water pictures the bathing, as it were, of the human soul. That you have now been declared positionally righteous before God. That you are no longer a sinner in his sight, but that all of your sins, past, present, and future, have been separated from him as far as the east is from the west. And so that when he looks at you, he sees a perfect child despite our imperfections. And notice what he says. He says, those who received baptism were buried, past tense, into the death and resurrection of Jesus so that they now walk in newness of life. And this text, along with Acts 2.38 and Mark 16.16, make it clear that baptism is reserved for those who have believed in Jesus Christ already. That it is a symbol and a picture of what Christ has done in their heart. And for those who are being baptized... What's happening in this evening is a picture to which you can look back and remember. So that as you perhaps struggle with your Christian walk, your baptism itself serves as a reminder, a picture, a declaration to your soul of what it is that Jesus Christ has done in you and for you. It's a mile marker, an Ebenezer, intended to point you once again to the perfection of your Savior, upon whom your life is fully dependent. That Jesus, as we often say, is not in love with some future perfect version of yourself, but that he loved you perfectly right when he found you. 
So baptism points first to what Jesus Christ has already done in the believer's life, but second, it reminds us of our future hope in the resurrection. Look, if you would, at verse 5. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. I've told this story before, but it's been a couple of years, so I think it's worth mentioning again. We find ourselves this evening in the building of Grace Hill Church, a sister church of ours, and a church that's been a tremendous blessing and gift to us. And a few years ago, when we first met in this building to use the baptismal, I remember meeting Pastor Schrock, the the pastor here at Grace Hill, and he was telling me stories about kind of the early history of the church. This church is about 175 years old, give or take. It's been here for a really long time. And one of the interesting stories that he shared was this. He said, in the early days of the church, there's a record that the church went out to one of the local rivers to have a baptism service. And as the pastor, this is nearly 175 years ago, is baptizing those who were, who were uh, declaring their proclamation of following Jesus Christ and identifying with the local church, they spotted an Indian scouting party that had also made its way down the river and was standing there looking and watching them as they were being baptized. And when that service ended, the pastor walked over to the Indian scouting party and and introduced himself to them. And their question to him was this, this ritual that we just saw you observe, is this a declaration of peace or a declaration of war? And what verse 5 has just declared is that in a very real sense, the baptism is a picture that the war is over. That the battle over your soul was finished when Christ died on the cross and rose from the dead. That the dominance of sin in our lives has been conquered once and for all in Christ. That the curse of sin and death has been fully absorbed in Christ. That not only was the slate wiped clean of your sin, but that you were brought into new life. But that's not the only picture we get from verse 5. He also says, since Christ has been raised, we too shall be raised. It's a promise of the physical, bodily resurrection to come. That just as Jesus Christ was physically, bodily resurrected, it was merely a precursor to the promise of what he was going to do for those who found salvation in him. The comfort that we have in death in this life is the promise that everything painful will be undone in his presence. That Christ will redeem every broken minute and every broken moment and every pain and every sorrow. And baptism works as a picture to point us back to what what Christ has already done. It points us forward to the hope that lies ahead. And third, baptism reminds us of the power that we now have to live the Christian life. Look what he says in verse 6. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once and for all. But the life he lives... He lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God. Paul is saying to those that know Jesus Christ, whatever marked your life prior to knowing Jesus. And for some of us, that's a dramatic and loud declaration. 
Whatever marked your life prior to knowing Jesus, the price has been paid completely by him. But the old man, the old flesh, that old person, the old you, that deserved judgment and the wrath of God and separation from him eternally, was already crucified with Christ at the cross. And that in that moment, all of your sins, past, present, and future, were forgiven completely. That you are no longer under the wrath and punishment of God. And that even to the extent that you still wrestle with sin, and you will, God is not regretting his purchase of you. But is saying, yes, I paid for that sin too. That when Jesus guaranteed your forgiveness by declaring it is finished, deliverance from sin was the exclamation point that followed. The sins that beset us and the sins of the past that are so difficult for us to forget are the sins that God has declared he refuses to remember. And that day by day, as you surrender to him, he is is shaping you and sanctifying you to be more like his son. It's the same idea that we find in Galatians chapter 2, that when you are placed in Christ, you are placed into a new identity, that everything that is true of Jesus has now been declared to be true of you, that you stand perfect in his sight, according to Romans 3, 21 and 22, that you are adopted into God's family, according to Romans chapter 8, that Jesus, that Jesus becomes your inheritance and you become his, according to Ephesians 1. And that not only are you placed into Christ, but that Christ now lives in you. That you have a whole new life and whole new motivations and whole new desires and whole new affections. So understand then that when someone enters the baptismal waters, they are declaring that they want their life to match their identity. So one theologian, a man named William Hendrickson, said it this way. When a person no longer feels at home in sin, he can be sure of the fact that he has been freed from the guilt of sin and that even the power which sin has been wielding over him is on the way out. So as we witness this baptism today, what I'd ask you to think about is the significance of what it is that we're going to see. You're going to hear people talk about their life before Christ. You're going to hear them talk about how Christ gave them new life and now what life in Christ looks like. And that baptism is a symbol. It's a symbol of where you've been. It's a symbol now of who you are. And it's a symbol of where you're going. That the regeneration that you've experienced in the past and the the resurrection that you're looking forward to in the future informs your experience of redemption in the present. And so when you see the water, let it remind you of the way that Christ cleanses us from sin. As you see these folks laid into the water, remember that it signifies their entrance into the death of Christ. That their old life has died with Jesus already. And as you see them brought up out of the water, recognize that it is now symbolic of the new life that they've been given and the future hope of life everlasting. That God in Christ, through the Spirit, made what was old and dead, new and alive. See, baptism is not a meaningless symbol. 
it is a magnificent display of obedience that demonstrates the incalculable way that your life has been forever changed. It's an identification with and a declaration of a brand new identity in Christ, serving as the sign for that individual, for the Christian community, and for the world of where your life now resides. And I think it's appropriate that as we celebrate with Phil and Rhonda and Amanda publicly identifying themselves with Jesus this evening, that we would also partake in the other visible word of God, which is communion. To come to the Lord's table as family. To participate in the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. To recognize not only what he's done in us individually and leading us to himself, but also to recognize what it does that he's done with us communally, together. And so understand that you don't have to be a a part of Disciples Church to participate in what's about to happen. If you're a believer in this room, we would invite you to participate in communion and to celebrate with us the death and the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ as we then look to the baptismal waters following that. But I would ask that if you're here and you're just observing tonight, you're here to see somebody else or to spend time with family or whatever else, and you don't know Jesus, I just ask that you stay where you are and just observe and consider what all of these things mean to us. And so what we're going to do is take just a couple of minutes to be still and to be quiet before our Lord to spend time with him. And then when the music begins, you can begin making your way up the center aisle, receiving the elements and making your way back to the outside aisles to return to your seats. And please wait until everybody's received those elements and we're all together to actually take them. We'll take those together in just a few moments. But let's pray and then go to silence. Lord, we thank you for what it is that we get to celebrate this evening. That lives have been miraculously changed. That folks who were dead in trespasses and sins, whose righteousnesses were as filthy rags, have been made into new and living people. Whose lives are pleasing to you because of your son, Jesus Christ who stand perfect and forgiven and accepted in your sight. And I thank you for all those that know this in the room, that we can come to your table, that we can participate of the bread and the wine, that we can partake of these things, and in so doing, remember the sacrifice and the resurrection of our Savior. That we can remember what it is that you did for us and what you did in us, And God, now what it is that you've called us to as a body. So God, we thank you that we get to make much of you in this place. And God, as we go to a time of silence to enjoy your presence and to be with you, would we be reminded of what it is that you've done first for us. And it's in your beautiful name that we pray. Amen.